Hello and good evening, you lovely, lovely geeky people. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews and an apology because last week was a complete mess up. And look, I've got no excuses, absolutely none, apart from the fact that I'm apparently really bad at this. I, it is fair to say that I have had a tumultuous several, I was going to say several weeks, several months, really, uh, during which time I have, on occasion, not been able to meet the gruelling schedule of getting this show recorded and broadcast out to you folk. Uh, that's not what happened last week. Last week, for the first time in a long time, you got an hour of dead air in the slot where this show was supposed to be. Um, if you're listening on the podcast feed, just disregard all of this. It only affects Harrogate community radio listeners. But on a Thursday evening between 8 and 9, you are supposed to have a show on the network. It's supposed to be there. And it wasn't. There was just dead air. And entirely my fault. And I've got absolutely no excuse. If you want to know what happened, I forgot what day it was. It's as simple and as embarrassing as that. Full disclosure, I, I have no excuses to make. Uh, there was nothing going on that needed to stop me getting the, the, the thing up there. Uh, I hadn't quite finished recording it. And I had in the back of my head, I needed to get that done. But somehow it, the penny never dropped in spite of the fact that, you know, I, I have a number of things that happen on particular days. And I did many Thursday specific things on that Thursday. And the penny still did not drop that it was Thursday. And I didn't realise until I got back from teaching at about half past nine on Thursday night and suddenly realised I hadn't done the thing. By which time it was far too late. And all I can tell you is I'm really sorry and it won't happen again. Uh, although I, I'm less, I, I can't say that I'm going to become a more organised and um, more clear of thinking human being. So it might happen again, actually. I'll just try and make sure it doesn't. So anyway, yeah, that was that. And also, I, I said that this week was uh, another hour of uh, geeky news, views and reviews. Uh, that is not entirely true either. This week, we have a bit of a retrospective look back at some stuff that happened in space. Actually, that's not true. Both of the things I want to talk about happened in the atmosphere, but they happened to spacecraft. And I want to talk about them because it is timely, I think to reflect on why you don't take chances in space and why, particularly when you have human spaceflight, you act with an excess and an abundance of caution. Because pressure is starting to mount on the Artemis programme. Respective launch dates for human crewed missions on, in the Artemis programme are beginning to slip. Now, I always said they would, but rumblings are beginning to happen in various places about how this never used to happen with Apollo and how NASA isn't quite doing its job properly and all of that. And so I want to explore two of the major reasons, not only why NASA is so cautious, but why NASA should be as cautious and as timid in its advancement of human spaceflight as it is. Those two reasons have names. They are called Challenger and Columbia. Let's talk about space. Space Man, I always wanted you to get 
So, let's define some terms. First of all, we are, of course, going to be talking about the Space Shuttle, which was the colloquial name for the whole thing, really. We talk, we talk about the Space Shuttle like it's one thing. It wasn't, and it was never actually called that. Uh, it was called, officially, the Space Transport System, or STS. And it comprised three major components, none of which were called the Space Shuttle. There was the external fuel tank, or the ET. That's the big, most usually orange, brownish sort of thing. Uh, it was originally white, but they discovered that if they didn't paint it, they could save like quite a lot of weight, so they stopped painting it. Then there were the solid rocket boosters, or SRBs. They were massive, solid-fueled rockets, which were strapped one on either side of the external fuel tank. And then finally, there was the orbiting vehicle. That was the thing with wings, the, the big white bird that sat on the back of the external fuel tank, and which most people think of as the shuttle. And that's what we're going to be calling that today. We're going to be talking about the shuttle when we mean the orbital vehicle. I'm only telling you this because that kind of detail matters to nerds, and I'm a nerd. At least I am about space. And so I'm getting it in before somebody tells me that it wasn't called the Space Shuttle, okay? Because it was really. Everybody called it that. So there were five orbital vehicles in total, uh, although there were not five at any one time for reasons we're going to get into today. They were Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Endeavour, and Atlantis. Uh, there was also the Enterprise, but she was never designed to fly in space. Uh, she was just a, a, a test vehicle for atmospheric testing that uh, flew is a strong word for what any of the space shuttles did. Uh, and, uh, and Enterprise was basically there to demonstrate how the shuttle would perform in atmosphere, which, spoilers, is not well. She flew like a brick. But that's for later. For now, you need to know two things. Between them, those five orbital vehicles made 135 flights. Two of those flights were catastrophically unsuccessful. That is a failure rate of less than 2%, which is, in fact, what was predicted at the start of the programme. It's kind of what you'd expect. It, not everything works in space all the time. A failure rate of less than 2% is pretty darned good. The problem with a failure rate of less than 2% when you're dealing with spacecraft that take people to space is that catastrophic failure of a spacecraft is generally terminal for all people involved. And so it was with the space shuttle. But in both cases, the terminal failure of the spacecraft was preventable and predictable. And that is a lesson that we need to take. So let's start with the first of the shuttle disasters. Let's talk about Challenger. The anniversary of this disaster has just passed. It was January the 28th, 1986, when the Space Shuttle Challenger blasted off from the Kennedy Space Center, carrying seven people on board. When we talk about things like the Challenger disaster, we tend to talk about the vehicles. And I really do want to put some names and some biographies to the people involved for, for all sorts of reasons, but mostly because they were people. So 
on board the Challenger on that fateful day were the astronaut Krista McAuliffe, who was very much a focus for this mission. She was, in fact, a teacher from New Hampshire. Uh, she was going to become the first civilian to fly in space. She'd earned that position uh, by winning the Teacher in Space Project, which was a contest that had been launched by NASA and by President Reagan, and which had had over 11,000 applications, which were sort of winnied down to 10 finalists. And McAuliffe was eventually chosen after various medical tests and all sorts of other applications. McAuliffe was 37 at the time of the flight. She was the mother of two children. And uh, she taught social studies and English and had been doing so for 15 years. Being part of the Teacher in Space programme made her an overnight celebrity. Uh, it meant that children across America and actually across the world, I watched this live, uh, children across America, across the world, were watching live when this thing went up. It was a massive publicity thing for NASA. Uh, they wanted to get into schools to promote the things that NASA likes to promote, to promote science, technology, engineering, mathematics, the whole STEM thing before that acronym was widely used. McAuliffe was hugely excited by this. She was going to give two lessons in space, uh, one entitled The Ultimate Field Trip and one entitled Where We've Been, Where We're Going and Why. And kids across America were going to watch her broadcast live from space to their classrooms. Now, those lessons were eventually recorded on the International Space Station, and they are available. Uh, links in the show notes, I hope. But the Challenger flight was about more than just one person. Also on board the space shuttle on that day was Ellison Onizuka. Uh, he was a hugely popular guy. He was the first Asian American and the first person of Japanese descent ever to travel into space. He was, in fact, himself Hawaiian, uh, and he took elements of his native Hawaiian culture with him wherever he went. He was an engineer. He'd served in the armed forces during the 70s. Uh, he'd been a test pilot throughout the 1970s. And in 1978, he was one of 35 people who were chosen for NASA's first new astronaut program since 1969. Uh, the group was dubbed the 35 New Guys, although I should point out that's a gender-neutral gender guys, as they were in fact six women in that astronaut class. Uh, he had flown in space before. He'd flown uh, in the third flight of Discovery in 1985. He was a hero in his native Hawaii. He was an icon for Asian Americans. Uh, he was celebrated in parades after that first space flight aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. And uh, as I record this now in 2023, uh, there are streets and stuff named after this guy. Uh, there's an Air Force station, there's an asteroid and a crater on the moon that bear his name. Also aboard was Ronald McNair, and he was also carrying, in some way, representation for his ethnic group with him. Um, Ronald McNair was the second African-American to fly in space. Um, as a nine-year-old, 
in a low-income community in Carolina, which was at that time segregated, um, it is recorded that he insisted on taking out a library book, despite the refusal of the racist librarian. Uh, this involved the police being called, uh, but legend states that even at nine, Ronald McNair knew his rights, stood up for himself and took that library book home. He must have read quite a lot more books since the age of nine because he took a PhD in physics from MIT. Uh, just a few years later than that, he also joined that same 1978 astronaut class uh, alongside Ellison Onizuka. At that point in 1978, no black person had ever flown to space. Two had been chosen in the astronaut programs in the 1960s, uh, but one was not selected to join NASA and the other died during a test flight, so never made it to space. But there was more to McNair than space, although he had flown in space before. He'd flown aboard the Challenger in 1984, uh, but he was also uh, a sixth Dan black belt in karate uh, and an, a very, very good, by all accounts, I've never heard him play, but a very good saxophone player. He had planned to become the first person ever to give a concert via live feed from space during that 1986 Challenger mission. Uh, but of course, he never made it to orbit. Then there was Judith Resnick. She was just 28 when she was asked to join NASA as part of that same 1978 astronaut, astronaut class. Uh, she was an academic prodigy. Uh, she'd scored perfect test scores through high school. She attended Carnegie Mellon uh, University as an undergraduate and then took a PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Maryland. Between those two degrees, she worked for RCA, helping on um, research projects at high altitude for major clients, which included NASA. Uh, and she'd also worked uh, as a biomedical engineer for the US National Institutes of Health. She actually was invited to join NASA just a year after taking that doctorate. And she spent five years training to be an astronaut uh, and working on other space related projects. Um, she was renowned for the big, big 1980s hair, uh, which always made for a fun photo op uh, when, you know, she was in microgravity and whatnot. Uh, she'd made a previous flight to space aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery back in 1984. Uh, when she did that, she became not just the first American person of Jewish heritage, but the first Jewish woman to make it into space. She was also the second American woman to fly in space after Sally Ride. Uh, American websites often say she was the second woman to fly in space. That is, of course, not true, because the Soviets had flown Valentina Tereshkova into space in the 1960s as the first woman to fly, which makes Sally Ride the second woman to fly in space, and Resnick the third. I, I, I say this not to diminish her achievements in any way, doesn't. It's just for historical accuracy and a mild irritation that Americans claim to be first to everything when they would. Then there was the shuttle's commander for that flight, Dick Scobie. Uh, he had had an incredible career in both the United States Air Force and at NASA. He flew combat missions for three years in Vietnam and became a test pilot 
uh, flying several cutting-edge aircraft through the late 1970s, a time when test pilots often had a relatively short career, shall we say. He was chosen as an astronaut candidate in 1978, in that same class as uh, Onizuka, McNair and Resnick, and he blasted through the training and exams. Uh, He was obviously a great pilot. He'd been a, a test pilot. He was an aerospace engineer. And he was also just just generally interested in everything. Uh, his official NASA biography details a very long list of hobbies, uh, which include flying, as you might expect, but also stuff like oil painting and motorcycling and racquetball and woodwork. Normally, when we talk about people being real all-rounders, we're talking about them being kind of a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none. Scobie was a jack-of-all-trades and master of all of them, as far as I can see. Uh He'd flown in space before. His first trip had again been on Challenger uh, when he'd been the pilot on Challenger's fifth flight in April 1984. And I'm just going to state for the record right here. Yes, he was the commander of that flight. No, there was nothing he could have done about what happened. I really hope he didn't know anything about it at all. As we'll talk about later, he probably did, in fact, know what was happening. And there was nothing absolutely nothing he could have done about it because of the design of the shuttle itself which we'll get to and there's gregory jarvis now like christian mcauliffe he did not come through the traditional path to being an astronaut uh, he was an engineer who wound up there through hard work and look um some of it good some of it bad ultimately i guess given what happened bad he'd spent his entire career around various aspects of aeronautics um, he had joined the Air Force, which is a fairly traditional way into being an astronaut, during the Vietnam War, and then gone into work on the spa- in the space division with a uh, speciality in satellites. After he left the military, he began to work for huge aircraft, huge aircraft, Hughes aircraft, uh, which was a major military uh, contractor and a major NASA contractor, which, again, probably because he'd worked on satellites for the Air Force, um, led him to be working on sort of space-related projects. After about 10 years at Hughes, he applied for um, the opportunity to work as part of the shuttle program, beating 600 other engineers from the Hughes company for that privilege. The Challenger flight was his first trip, or supposed to be his first trip to space. Again, he never actually got there. Um, He should actually have flown in April 1985, uh, but he lost his seat to uh, the Republican senator for Utah, uh, Senator Jake Garn. Uh, And then he got pushed back again in January 1986 uh, by um, the Democratic representative from Florida, um, Representative Bill Nelson. And because of that, he finally got a seat in the late January flight, 1986. Of Challenger. Finally, there was Michael J. Smith. Like Scobie, uh, Smith was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he joined NASA at the end of the 1970s. Uh, he was known as an athlete and he spent a lot of the 1980s helping NASA to um, develop new parts and new procedures for the Space Shuttle project. He wound up as the pilot of Challenger on that flight, after nearly two years of being shortlisted. In 1984, he was assigned 
to fly the Spatial Atlantis for her second flight. And he was very nearly the pilot for a shuttle flight in 1985. But again, somebody else took the helm on that mission. And that meant he was aboard Challenger. Like McAuliffe, he also left a family behind. And it seems that he may have sensed that something was wrong fairly early in the flight. His is the last voice recorded on the Space Shuttle's uh, flight voice recorder, uh, where he's audibly heard to kind of go, uh-oh, just before everything cuts off. So that's the crew. What happened? Well, essentially, Challenger exploded quite spectacularly. At the time, I certainly had assumed that the crew was killed instantly. It was, as I say, a very spectacular explosion. It does now seem that, in fact, that's not what happened. The crew compartment for the space shuttle was quite heavily reinforced and definitely survived the explosion. It seems likely that the astronauts did too, although not for long. What likely killed them was the rapid decompression of the crew compartment as it plummeted to the ground. We'll get back into that later on, because actually, well, the first thing we should establish is, well, what exactly happened? Because the real tragedy of the Challenger disaster is that it not only could have been prevented, but should have been prevented because there were engineers the day before the launch, the night before the launch, who were literally on the phone with launch control, pleading with them to not launch the spacecraft because they could see what was going to happen coming. And they were overruled. And the reason they were overruled is another thing we need to get into. So, in order to understand what happened, you need to know a little bit about the construction and the design of the space shuttle. If you imagine it, and do you know what? There's a diagram on the show notes. I know this because I've already put it there. But you'll be familiar, if you've seen the space shuttle, with what it looks like at launch. What you've got is the orbiter, that's the bit with the thing with wings that actually goes to space and then glides back down to Earth. Effectively attached to the underside of that, you have the external fuel tank, that's the orange bit. Strapped to either side, you've got the boosters. Okay, so the boosters were reusable. They were launched up with the shuttle. They separated from the external fuel tank that they were attached to at a particular point. And they literally just parachuted back down to Earth. They landed in the sea and they were then recovered. Uh, later flights, much later than Challenger, but later flights, they actually had cameras on them that recorded this whole thing. And you can see one of those videos in the show notes. Uh, I like those videos. I used to watch them a lot when they were new because you get to ride to space, dudes, because th this separation happens right on the edge of space and you get to ride up there and then parachute back down again. It's awesome. So that's what they used to do. Now, for all sorts of reasons, these solid rocket boosters were not made in one piece. They were made in sections. And then these sections were stacked on top of each other to make one long tube. The fuel 
which was a sort of solid fuel made of uh, ammonium perchlorite and aluminium powder, was in effect stuck around the inside of that tube. And there was a sort of space right at the middle of the tube to allow the fuel to burn. Effectively, the solid rocket boosters were a very, very big firework. Unlike the liquid-fueled shuttle main engines, which burned the fuel from the, the external fuel tank, once the solid rocket boosters are lit, that's it. They're lit. There's nothing you can do about it after launch. They burn until they run out of fuel, and then they're done. The point of them was to give that extra punch of thrust to get the shuttle through the atmosphere. Because actually, travelling through air at speed is really difficult. It takes a lot of power. But, obviously, the solid rocket boosters, or SRBs, have not really a fatal design flaw. It's not a design flaw. It's there on purpose. But there is a design weakness that is known, was, was always known, which are the joints. If you have what is effectively a tube of something burning, and that tube has joints in it, there is always the, po the possibility, the risk, that... A joint will fail. And if a joint fails on a tube of burning stuff, there is a very real chance that the fire, the flame, the heat will escape from that tube at the wrong point. On a rocket, you want all of that exhaust, all of that expanding hot gas to be ejected from the bottom of the rocket. That's how rockets work. If it starts coming out the side, you've got a problem because one of two things can happen. Either a jet of flame coming out the side of your tube, which potentially, if that tube is strapped to a massive fuel tank full of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, you can burn through the side of the fuel tank and ignite the fuel. This would be very, very bad not conducive to the continued longevity of the aforementioned spacecraft. Or you get that lick of flame, that jet of hot exhaust gases coming out through the side of the tube, that produces thrust and makes the tube point in directions it shouldn't be pointing. Now again, if that tube is strapped to the side of a massive tank of liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, that would be bad, because even if you don't have the blowtorch effect, that can make the tube itself, it can thrust the tube itself into the fuel tank, bursting the fuel tank, which will then explode, because it's got huge amounts of ignition sources all around it. That would also be very explodey and very bad. But ultimately, that's what happened to Challenger. The joints in the tube failed. A jet of flame, exhaust gases, whatever you want to call it, came out the side of that tube. If you look on the video, and again, it's in the show notes, the, the Challenger Disaster video is in the show notes, so you can have a look at this. You can see, just before the explosion, a lick of flame coming out the side of the left-hand side booster as you look at it. I always thought that what had happened was the blowtorch effect, that that lick of flame burned through the fuel tank ignited the fuel tank and kablooey. That's actually not what happened. What happened was the second scenario that I outlined. That jet of flame produced thrust. That 
caused the bolts holding the bottom of the solid rocket booster to the side of the tank to shear because they weren't designed to handle forces from that direction. And as the solid rocket booster came loose, it went into the fuel tank. Whether it was the heat from the shuttle's main engines or the heat from the exhaust gases coming out of the solid rocket booster that ignited the fuel in the fuel tank is a moot point and frankly not that important. At stage, the mission was irretrievably lost, as was the crew. The explosion was huge and you will note if you watch the video, from that explosion, the two solid rocket boosters kept going. They were eventually destroyed by the launch control people on the ground to make sure they didn't land in a populated area. But they were they were blown up deliberately. Most of the debris from the explosion also kept going up for quite a while. There was a lot of inertia and a lot of momentum going on there. So most of the debris kept going upwards for a bit. And then it all crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. My Sincere and fervent hope is that by the time that happened, everyone on board was already dead because this was not a survivable thing. And I really hope they didn't have the last three or four minutes of their lives be knowing they were plunging to their deaths because that's awful. And there was nothing they could do about it, which is an inherent design flaw. In the shuttle. Unlike pretty much every single crewed spacecraft that's been built for NASA before or since, the space shuttle had no escape mechanism. None. So if something went wrong on the way to orbit that compromised the structural integrity of the spacecraft, there was nothing the crew could do to save themselves. The only thing you could do in the space shuttle to save yourself in the event of a disaster was fly the orbiter back to the ground. That was it. So any chance of survival depended on the structural integrity of the orbital vehicle itself. Now, if something like that had happened, if they'd lost the fuel tank, if the solid rocket boosters had fallen off and not caused an explosion, they couldn't have got to orbit, but they could then have jettisoned everything and glided the spacecraft, not home, because that's not how that works, but they could have glided the spacecraft in. There were emergency runways in Europe that in the event of the space shuttle not being able to make it to orbit, it could have aborted to runways in Spain. It was suggested it could have used the runway RAF Finningley, now the closed Doncaster Robin Hood Airport. That runway was long enough to land a shuttle on, although it would have been a weird trajectory if it had gone anywhere near there. Uh, so it was more likely to land somewhere in Spain. Uh, but those runways existed and those plans existed. But unfortunately, you can't fly a space, a space plane that doesn't have wings. And after the explosion, the shuttle did not have those. The Challenger disaster raises really two questions. The first is why no escape system? And the second is how did the joints on the solid rocket booster fail? What caused that? Well, we're going to deal with the second bit first, 
because we know. And they knew on the day of launch if they'd been listening to the engineers who built the solid rocket boosters. So the issue was with the components used to put the sections of the solid rocket boosters together and their ability to withstand cold. Basically, the the sections of the solid rocket boosters essentially snapped together and the joints were sealed by what the manufacturers referred to as O-rings and which were effectively giant washers. Now, the issue was that when it got very cold, they did not perform as well and they were not essentially as malleable. So instead of compressing and expanding to ensure that the seal between the two sections of the solid rocket booster was always airtight and, rather crucially, explosive gas tight. When it was very, very cold, they became a little bit too rigid, so that if the roosters flexed, rather than maintaining that seal, it was possible for the hot exhaust gases to get out through that seal. Challenger made its final flight on the 28th of January. 1986 and in Florida the 20th of January 1986 was very cold very cold indeed abnormally cold for Florida which was in the middle of an abnormally cold snap indeed the cold had delayed the launch of the shuttle a couple of times already and NASA was getting antsy about that because it was a high profile launch there was a lot riding on it was felt, rightly or wrongly, that the American public was getting a little bit bored of the shuttle. It had been initially launched in 1981 with huge fanfare. There'd been much publicity about the build-up. Uh, the Space Shuttle Enterprise had been named for the Starship Enterprise after a write-in campaign by Star Trek fans, and they'd gone huge with the publicity for that. You know, they'd had the, the cast of Star Trek which was at that point making actually quite good Star Trek films, go and see the Shuttle Enterprise for its sort of atmospheric testing launchy type stuff. So there'd been a huge build-up. And then when the Shuttle Columbia had made that first historic flight into space in 1981, huge, huge publicity. By 1986, it was boring and not living up to the hype. As so often happens, because they needed to get money from Congress to fund the development of the space shuttle, they'd overpromised. They'd said that the shuttle would be able to do all kinds of things it was never going to be able to do. They were promising, you know, a turnaround time of a week or so. They were suggesting that one of the things that could go in that capacious shuttle cargo bay was a passenger carrying module and that the shuttle would somehow become. An airliner. I remember seeing that publicity as a kid and thinking, wow, that'd be cool. And at no point did it ever occur to me that that's not going to work. Who's going to want to sit and face launch G-forces to get across the Atlantic? OK, you could get across the Atlantic in 20 minutes, but you'd have to spend like three weeks training for it. So it's just actually easier to get on a regular plane. And apparently that hadn't occurred to anybody else either, because people were beginning to ask, well, where is all this stuff? Why aren't we doing a launch a week? You know, why, why aren't we 
taking passengers into space and across the Atlantic and doing all this crazy stuff. You know, what's going on? It's just not doing what you said. And so NASA was desperate for a publicity win. That's what the Teacher in Space program was all about. And now suddenly the teacher in space wasn't in space. He was stuck sitting around in Florida because the shuttle she was supposed to be riding to space was sitting on the launch pad because it was chilly. And people were starting to say, well, how is a bit of cold keeping this thing on the ground? This was supposed to be this amazing workhorse that was supposed to be just going backwards and forwards into space like it was routine. So there is no question that the people in charge of the launch were feeling some pressure to get the thing off the ground and get the show up and running because they wanted the good publicity. And what they were getting was the people that they were trying to impress going, why is nothing happening? So the decision was made to launch and engineers who had worked on the solid rocket boosters said, oh, no, no, actually, no, give it a give it wait, wait and let it warm up a bit. And the reason they said that was because they had seen solid rocket boosters that had been launched in cold temperatures previously come back with scorch marks on the O-rings that shouldn't have been there if the O-rings had been doing their jobs. And so they knew that, look, if you launch this thing when it's as cold as this, those O-rings are not going to work properly, and that is inherently dangerous. We cannot guarantee the safety of that launch if you launch in these temperatures. And look, I'm, I'm not dropping any names in this show, but I have seen interviews with engineers who recount like getting on the phone the night before the launch and saying, for, for the love of God, don't do this. And one guy who I, I've seen interviewed visibly still 30 years later, still shaken and basically saying, look, I knew those as I knew those seven people were going to die and there was nothing I could do about it. I did everything I could. I told everyone who needed to know and it was very clear that this was quite likely to happen. Not that it was a possibility, but that it was quite likely. And for whatever reason, he was not believed. Now, I choose to believe it's because he was one of a couple of voices and there were lots of other people who were saying, well, look, you know, we have launched in conditions similar to this before. It's been fine. Of course, he's acting with an abundance of caution. He's an engineer. That's what they do. But look, we've done this before. It'll be fine. It'll be right. And how much of that was genuinely? Look, we're sure this is fine. It's honestly, it's not a problem. We genuinely are convinced it's fine. And how much of that was, I very seriously want to believe that it's fine because there's too much riding on this launch. We don't want to wait any longer. I hope it wasn't too much of the latter. Because if it was, some people presumably are having a very hard time living with those decisions. But, but for whatever reason, the decision was made to go. And the result is well documented, I'm afraid. So that's why the solid rocket booster failed in the way it did. They had subsequently were re-engineered and 
new regulations, new protocols were put in place, the shuttle never launched in those conditions again. Why no escape system? You know, why couldn't the astronauts get out of there? It's possible. I actually think it's genuinely unlikely, but it's possible that had there been some kind of ejection system, then the astronauts and Challenger might have been able to react quickly enough to get out of there before it went. And maybe they could therefore have survived. case of Challenger, I, I think we can perhaps comfort ourselves by saying that, well, you know, they, they would have had a fraction of a second to respond, maybe a second or two to respond. They probably wouldn't have ejected. So the lack of such a system maybe didn't kill them. The same cannot be said for the other shuttle disaster, the shuttle Columbia. That was 20 years ago today, if you're listening to this on the day it drops. It was the 1st of February, 2003. I know exactly where I was when I heard. Uh, I nearly crashed the car because I was driving down the A1 and uh, the news was on. And I had quite a strong reaction because I had quite an attachment to Columbia. She was the first of the big white birds. She was the first shuttle to fly in space. On that day in 1981, I had sprinted home from school to try and catch the launch live. I missed it. And I was really cross about it, as I recall. But I did see her land for the first time live. She was the first. She felt special. And I'd been following the mission. I, I was a teacher by that time, and I was already running the Rocket Club at school. And so me and the kids had been following the mission. It had been a really successful flight. They'd done everything they were supposed to be doing. Who were they? Just as with Challenger, there was a seven-person crew on board. They were Mission Commander Rick Husband, Colonel in the US Air Force and Test Pilot. He'd free previously flown the Space Shuttle STS-96 mission a year or two earlier. Uh, the pilot was uh, US Navy Commander William McCall. It was his first space flight. Payload Commander was Michael Anderson, uh, Lieutenant Colonel in the US Air Force. Second shuttle flight for uh, Lieutenant Colonel Anderson. Then there was the flight engineer, uh, also on her second space flight. Uh, that was Kalpana Chalwa. Uh, then there were David Brown and Laurel Clark, both captains in the US Navy, who were both on their first space flights and both flying as mission specialists, uh, which means they were there because they had specific roles to do. Uh, and finally, there was Elan Ramon, uh, a colonel in the Israeli Air Force, uh, also a payload specialist, and the first Israeli astronaut. All seven people died as their spacecraft effectively fell apart around them on re-entry. Why did that happen? Again, it goes to shuttle design, and there is a shocking, well, to me at least, uh, a bit of film that shows exactly the second during launch that the Shuttle Columbia was doomed. If you watch the launch footage closely, and in fact there's even a GIF of this, Neil, you can see at uh, 81.9 seconds into the flight, a bit of foam, a bit of insulation foam from the external tank 
breaks off and hits the leading edge of the shuttle's wing. That's it. That's all it took. Now, it, it was known at this point that the insulation foam could come off the external tank during launch. It's not even surprising, really. It's literally spray-on insulation that is on the outside of the tank. And during the stresses of launch, of course, bits of that are going to break off. It simply wasn't considered to be terribly dangerous. What actually happened was that piece of foam hit the leading edge of the shuttle wing in exactly the wrong place with just the right amount of force to not cause any major damage, not cause any visible damage, not cause anything that was picked up. But it did crack one of the heat resistant tiles or possibly just widened a joint between two of the heat resistant tiles. It's not clear, I don't think. So that when they came in through the atmosphere and the exterior of the shuttle became so incredibly hot, a bit of red hot plasma or whatever it was in between the heat shield, the ceramic tiles that were the heat shield for the shuttle and the inner skin of the shuttle. And once that had happened, all kinds of other things started happening and the shuttle essentially was not designed for those stresses. Under the incredible stress loads that the shuttle airframe was subjected to during re-entry, she just fell apart. Now, again, I really, really hope that what happened, and I've not seen anything from NASA about this, I, I suspect largely because, well, to be honest, it's none of our business how these people died. It's bad enough for the families without knowing that kind of stuff, and certainly without people like me talking in detail about that kind of stuff. So I hope that what happened, I'm choosing to believe that what happened, is that the cabin depressurized almost immediately, everyone was killed pretty much instantly, and there was nothing, you know, they didn't suffer. I, I'm choosing to believe that. I ha I'm deliberately not checking. Because again, if they'd known about it, there would have been nothing they could do. You couldn't stop this thing. Once it was starting to re-enter, it's basically a slave to the laws of physics. It was falling out of space, and there's not a huge amount you could do to stop that. It didn't have any fuel, so you couldn't sort of go back into orbit and stop re-entry. You couldn't do that. So once you're in, you're in. And it's basically... it's Look, the shuttle did not fly well. She was not an easy aircraft to fly in atmosphere. She was designed, essentially, to glide on a fairly steep trajectory at fairly high speeds until she landed. And, you know, you, you could you could circle around and bank to lose speed and you could you could make a fairly graceful landing. The shuttle looked beautiful when she landed, but she flew like a brick. You had to be a very good pilot. And at altitude, there was very little you could do. You, you, you were coming down and the descent was pretty much predetermined from orbit. Once you'd deorbited, you were on a glide path that you really could not deviate from. So if something went wrong, like, for example, your heat shield started to fail, if you knew about that, all you could do was cross your fingers, grit your teeth and try and fly through it. And if your 
if your boat falls apart around you, well, that's it. There's, there was nothing you could do. In a conventional aircraft, uh, certainly a conventional military aircraft, uh, passenger planes don't have this luxury, but in a conventional military aircraft, you could eject. In the shuttle, you couldn't. No way. That was not happening because there was no system for that. There never had been. They tried and they figured out a way of doing it, as I understand it. Uh, essentially, the the crew compartment that the crew sat in during launch was quite heavily reinforced. It could survive a lot of abuse. The original plan had been that in an emergency, that whole compartment could just be ejected out of the main body of the airframe. And it would then parachute down as one sealed unit so that if it was at really high altitude when they had to eject, they could survive that because they wouldn't depressurize and stuff. It, it was too expensive and too heavy to do what had been planned. And so they basically decided they were just going to make a thing that was so safe they would never need an injection system and not put an injection system in. And you know what? They were almost right. To be fair to NASA, they were almost right. Just over a hundred flights. Two failures. Two percent. Less than two percent. That's an acceptable failure rate in almost any other circumstance. It's actually better than the failure rate of, let's say, passenger planes. So we should put this into some context. Space is hard and space is dangerous. But, but, doesn't alter the fact that 14 extraordinary people died in those two shuttle failures. And in both cases, those people could have been saved. Lessons, of course, were learned. After the Columbia disaster, the shuttle was grounded for another couple of years, just as it had been after the Challenger disaster, while they figured stuff out and tried to figure out how to make it safe. At that point, they could not retrofit the shuttle to put an escape system in. It never had one. Once it went back to flight, however, there were a couple of things that changed. First of all, no shuttle ever again launched in isolation. Whenever a shuttle launched, there was another shuttle on the pad ready to go. The idea was that if the same thing happened again, if the shuttle was damaged during launch and its heat shield was compromised, then the crew, even if it was not an International Space Station mission, the crew would make their way to the International Space Station, essentially park the shuttle outside and hang around at the International Space Station until the standby shuttle could be launched. It would take a day or two to get it completely ready and fueled. So they'd wait at the International Space Station until the relief shuttle could launch and bring them home. And then the Duff shuttle could be piloted home remotely. And if it survived, well and good. And if it didn't, well, at least nobody died. So there was that. The other thing that happened, and honestly, there is some awesome video footage as a result. The shuttle launch after Columbia also involved a sort of backflip maneuver once they got into orbit, where, you know, they'd fly up to the International Space Station, which is where they were mostly going at that point. And before docking, they'd do a little backflip so that 
the high-def cameras on the exterior of the International Space Station could inspect the shuttle for damage, just to make sure it was safe. And beyond that, they were kind of crossing their fingers just a little bit, that nothing else would go wrong. But the Columbia disaster did put the final nail in the coffin of the space shuttle programme. By the time of the Columbia disaster in 2003, the shuttle was already ageing. It was already a matter of record that NASA had at least once had to go to eBay to try and find old computer parts to replace bits of the shuttle's computer because they were literally not making computers like that anymore. Because at that point it was 20 years old and, you know, computing moves fast and stuff in the shuttle was already technically obsolete. Even though systems were constantly being upgraded and re redesigned, there are some fundamentals that you simply could not change without completely redesigning everything, which clearly they couldn't do. That would have required another space shuttle program, which they didn't have the money for. So once the shuttle's building the ISS job was complete, the shuttle was retired. The final space shuttle mission, STS-135, the 135th space shuttle mission, launched on July the 8th, 2011, uh, to the International Space Station and um, landed on July the 21st, 2011, having extended the mission by one day. She was carrying a four-person crew, the smallest of any shuttle mission since the 6th in April 1983. Um, the Space Shuttle Atlantis was the final shuttle to fly, uh, and she carried the multi-purpose logistics module, Raffaello, and the lightweight multi-purpose carrier, the LMC, to the International Space Station. And even at quite a late stage before launch, there were questions about whether that mission should fly. It had no funding allocated to it for a start, and launching the shuttle was catastrophically expensive. Estimates vary, but it was about $125,000 a kilogram. So in the end, she went out, honestly, with a bit of a whimper, and not with the fanfare and celebration that the shuttle really deserved. It was a remarkable piece of technology, probably the most complicated machine ever built by humans. Set by compromise and cost-cutting from the very beginning, and we may get into that in a different episode. But to space geeks of my generation, there is something very, very special about the shuttle. I think that she was a beautiful design, and something that NASA can be mostly incredibly proud of. But there is a very important lesson, which I think NASA has learned, that we have to take from the shuttle program. The first is sometimes compromises can go too far. And the second is always listen to your engineers. I think we can actually extrapolate that to always listen to the people who know what they're talking about. And when people who genuinely know what they're talking about tell you not to do a thing because it's going to be a disaster, maybe listen. And that is why the Artemis missions are already behind schedule and are going to fall further behind schedule. It is fine for SpaceX 
to move fast and break and break things. If that's what they want to do, if that's how they want to convert, conduct their uncrewed spaceflight, fine. But if they're going to work with NASA and they're going to work with people and they're going to put humans into space, then they need to slow down and make sure things don't break. That's the lesson. I genuinely fear the likes of Elon Musk, who is still at the head of SpaceX, don't really believe that, ultimately, is what the Space Shuttle taught us. And we are nearly out of time. So we will very quickly look at a couple of bits of news. Uh, AI has been back in the news again, again, for very negative Reasons. I'm not going to get into the whole Taylor Swift thing. Uh, of course, of course, AI is going to be used to create um, indecent images. Technology is always used to create pornography from the early days of photography through video and everything. That, that's an industry that drives technologically technological advances in many, many ways. Of course, it's going to happen with AI. Of course, it's terrible. And of course, it needs to be stopped. Of course, the legislature is always going to be behind the people who are doing this kind of stuff. We will do a deep dive into AI uh, at some point in the future when I can stomach it. But for right now, it's too murky. In more fun news, James Gunn has found his Supergirl. We'll talk about that next week. And there are interesting whispers about developments in Star Wars. Although, for goodness sake, they keep announcing projects and then not doing them. So, yeah, we'll we'll take that with a pinch of salt. But we will be back next week with a bit more of a news-heavy episode. We'll highlight another wonderful woman of science fiction and explore the world of geeky entertainment in a little bit more depth. I think we're, I think we're engineering doubt for a week or two, don't you? But all of that is still in the future. That's it for now. Uh, just in a, a, a moment of extreme sentimentality, you might think, I would like to dedicate this edition of Geeking with Destination Venus to the crews of the Space Shuttle Challenger and the Space Shuttle Columbia, but also to the vehicles themselves, which represented so much to so many people. And, of course, I should also point out that if you have any suggestions, comments, or want to say anything at all about Anything to do with the show, uh, info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to send all those thoughts. Especially if you have a geeky business or a geeky event that you would like to plug. Uh, we don't have anything on the Geek Community Notice Board again this week, but uh, we are here to publicise you as and when you need publicising. That's info at destinationvenus.co.uk. This is not an advertising thing. It's not a charged service. Uh, it's just something we do because we like to spread the geeky word. But that is pretty much my last geeky word for this week. All that's left is to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production and is proudly made in Yorkshire. We'll be back next week. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to absolutely everybody else. And above all else, just stay. Geeky. We'll see you soon.